I want to sing it again. That's what I want to do. <laughs> oh, that's what a great song, Brad. I will be remembering that. Well, I, my name is Greg Waybright, and this is my wife, Chris, and we serve in various places here at Lake Avenue Church. <laughs> uh, this morning, I have the privilege of introducing our speaker, uh, and then Chris and I together will read God's Word. On our art celebration weekend, our speaker is Brandon Waybright. He is a writer, educator, zine maker, and new media artist. As an interdisciplinary artist and writer, he explores issues related to design critical theory, multi-sensory and interactive technology, and community engagement through design. He's exhibited his works nationally, including right down here at the Museum of Contemporary Art at Los Angeles and in the Palm Springs Art Museum. And then he also served as co-curator and exhibition designer and community coordinator for Westmont, where he was at the college there and afterwards at Westmont uh, Ridley Tree Museum of Art. With experience in teaching at a wide range of institutions, including the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, of course, Trinity International University in Deerfield, Illinois. Uh, Brandon currently serves as the co-chair for applied design at George Fox University. His commercial work focuses on web design and identity system development with clients including Disney, Jack Johnson, Tim Burton, Azusa Pacific University, Northwestern University, and Princeton University. Uh, Brandon now lives in Newburgh, Oregon with his wife, Kelsey, who grew up here, Kelsey Pentecost Waybright, and who soloed for us this morning, and I'm not uh, proud at all. Uh, they also have a dog named Otto, and he is our son. So, And our scripture reading today is found in the book of Mark, chapter 8, verses 21 to 26. Let's stand again, because we're going to be hearing our Father's word. Jesus said to his disciples, do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside of the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Oh boy, getting introduced by your dad, <laughs> it's a thing. <laughs> well, I'm going to have a very teacher moment here, because the first thing I want you to do is pull out some kind of paper and something to draw or write with. I think there's like sermon note cards in the pew, in case you don't have any of that paper stuff that they make out of trees, you know. Um, and while, while you're doing that, I just want to say, it's been a great year in the Pacific Northwest. It's been nice being up at George Fox. Um, when I got here, I kind of thought I wasn't in the right place for a moment. I mean, everything was green outside. Uh, it was raining. The LA River actually had water. I don't think I've ever seen that. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> 
it's all just for Arts Weekend, I, it must be, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I think since it's Arts Weekend, it seems fitting that we start today by giving you an art assignment. So I want you really, really quickly here, I'm not going to give you enough time, I want you to draw a nose on whatever paper you have in front, just go for it. Don't overthink it, I'm not going to give you a lot of time. Start making some marks, draw a nose. And if you finish one, just start drawing more noses. Just nose after nose after nose, it'll be great. This is real sermon material here. All right, stop. <laughs> That's enough nose drawing. All right, in that little bit of time you had, I just am curious, how many of you out there drew some kind of like cartoon nose thing? Maybe something like what you see up, oh good, yes, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Now how many of you looked at someone's nose around you? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of nose, there's at least as many noses as people. So, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's some available. Let's try this assignment just one more time though. So, um, you can follow along with me, but I want to explain how I would look at drawing a nose. And I'm going to go a little bit quick, so you may not be able to get all of it as you go. I would give you more time if you were in a class. Um, but you can try and draw along and see how it goes, because this time, I want you to not think about drawing a nose. And I've got an image up here. All I want you to do is draw shadows and light. Don't worry about what it is, just look for shadows and light. And we're going to use this lovely, uh, definitely not a stock photo model, person to help us. <laughs> See, you may want to give yourself some sort of contour line just to define like the bridge of the nose, but after that, don't worry about it. Draw the shadows. First, pick out the deepest, darkest shadow. You see there's kind of like a wedge-like shape that's happening there. Try to just craft that and darken it, make a shape and a form. You're not worried about what it is, it's just a shape that you're drawing, okay? Once you've defined that, you start to look, where are the middle values? Where's the gray areas? You can kind of handle those and render those by, if you have a pencil, you can like just lighten up your, the, your pressure. It'll kind of give you a lighter mark. If you have a pen, you might try this lovely hatching technique where you just do repeated lines. It kind of gives you this middle value. Um, the last part is the highlights. Those are my favorite, because you don't have to do anything for those. The paper does the work for you. You just let them be there. <laughs> let them be light. Are you seeing noses in a slightly different way yet? A lot of looking at noses, maybe more than you remember doing recently. <laughs> See, what this exhibits is, for an artist, seeing isn't just about looking at things, it's about interpreting what you're seeing in front of you. Learning to see is actually about learning to understand something. And the most important thing of all for artists to understand to see is the light. In our department, one of our favorite sayings is, it's all about the light. All art making, it's about the light. See, you need to understand the way light behaves when it falls across different forms to understand the variations in shadow that you see. And you really need to understand what you can't see. You need to not let your assumptions get in the way to realize that there are limits to your vision. And that's what a cartoon nose is. A cartoon nose is just an assumption. It's drawing what you know, but not what is really there in front of you. So if you ever sit in a good drawing class, you're going to be told this. Draw what you see, not what you know. What we mean is stop making assumptions and pay attention to what you see right in front of you. To draw a, no a nose correctly, we have to retrain our eyes. We have to discern the way the light touches the object in the front of us. If you don't take time to see, if you just operate on what you think you know or assume to be right, 
you'll continue to struggle to respond to the light. And the nose is just going to remain a cartoon. And in this passage today, I think Jesus is giving his disciples really similar advice. Stop making assumptions about who I am. Look, I'm right here in front of you. And so the story begins with Jesus, and I just imagine his most exasperated teacher voice. I'm mid-semester, so maybe I'm reading into this, but that question, do you still not understand? I mean, I have to imagine him heavy, like heaving this huge sigh as he just tries yet again to explain. Like, look, my dudes, we just did the loaves and fishes thing. You should be seen by now. So I think Christ decides it's about time to open up some eyes. And it's really important to realize when Christ talks about blindness or he heals blindness, it's not just like a biological intervention. He's not just saying like, look, I'm about to activate some photoreceptors in the back of that person's eyeballs. It's a calling for everyone around him to realize they too are blind. See, he's calling everyone to see. Don't just look at this blind fellow and think, well, isn't that swell? Now he can see. Behold what the light is doing. And I don't know, maybe Jesus is just trying to shock everyone. Maybe he's trying to rid himself of this kind of Jesus the conquering ruler vibe that's been going around in the disciples' heads. But Jesus does something rather curious in this healing. He uses spit. We need to offer some respect to this blind fellow, I think. I mean, I don't know about you. If a person takes me by the hand, leads me out of town, and then proceeds to spit in my eyes, I might have a few questions. (laughs) I don't know, (laughs) maybe it's just me. To understand how strange this is, I thought maybe a little reenactment could help us. So, uh, any volunteers? (laughs) No, oh. Dwayne? No? Oh, okay. (laughs) No, I mean, seriously, why on earth would Jesus do this? I mean, a person fully capable of healing just by saying something. Why is he spitting in someone's eyes? We can theorize, we can theologize, we can pontificate about this point for as long as we want, but no matter where we're at, whether we're on the far right or far left, we can agree about something with this. It's so gross. I mean, not only that, it's pretty offensive. I mean, it's something people do after they curse. It's a condemnation that God even references. I will spit you out of my mouth. And at the same time, it's this weird, strangely intimate moment. I mean, we're talking bodily fluids here. Ah. This is not the mother-approved messianic material we were hoping for. (laughs) In order for this man to see He has to go through an ordeal. He has to endure this embarrassing, offensive gesture. But it's through that encounter, through that embarrassment, through that offense, that vision is offered. And I think there's something in that for us. See, the fact is that changing vision is not an easy activity. When an artist tries a new perspective or a new medium, it's rarely a lovely thing. Those first things you make, they're, they're, they're rough. <laughs> I mean, it's like the first time you pick up a guitar and have no clue what you're doing. It is, it is a challenge. Changing vision was definitely not easy for the blind man, and the disciples are soon to have a little bit of spit in their eyes as they see their ruling conqueror Jesus slain on a cross. 
And I kind of wonder if there might be some spit coming our way too. Because remember, part of the miracle is to realize we're blind. I mean, how many times are we unwilling to endure the embarrassment of admitting that we might have some blindness in our lives? How many times do we fail to see clearly? Do we encounter righteous spit and recoil at the offense rather than enduring? This change of vision, this sanctification, it's a messy, difficult process. One that requires us to endure offense, to continue our attention, be willing to trust and to remain, even when things are unclear, even when they challenge us in our typical vision, to be assured that that vision will be made perfect. And this is how redemption works again and again and again, enduring an offensive, uncomfortable act that destroys our expectations and yet brings glory. So if we're to reset our vision, if we're to be made to see, to be conformed to Christ, we need to endure the spit shine. But there's also another curious thing about this healing. It doesn't quite work right away. See, Jesus asks, do you see anything? And after the saliva, he still can't tell the people from the trees. I mean, this, this blind person is saintly. Spit in his eyes, it doesn't really work, and he's not on the phone yelling at customer service yet. I mean, it's important to realize in this moment, the blind person is actually seeing better than Jesus' disciples, because he knew what he could see, and he knew what he couldn't see. The disciples, they've been watching Jesus closely for long enough now. They've seen so much, and they still just don't get it. They think they're seeing, but they're missing the point. And I want us to empathize with them, because it's easy to just point at them, but let's, let's understand what it's like. I thought I might be able to do it by showing you an image here. So if you'll help me out, just what do you see there? You can just shout it out. Grass, great, we all see it, but we aren't really seeing it. Some of us maybe aren't understanding it. Let me help you see this image differently. No spit involved this time. See, I've been training to be part of a search and rescue team, and during one of our training sessions, we were focused on tracking, and they put up an image like this in front of us and asked us a similar question. Once you've learned a few basics about tracking, you can see this image and understand it's not about grass, it's about a footprint. So you can see this outline here. It might be a little bit difficult from where you are, but the grass there is matted down in a way. It's bent, where all the grass is upright. And what that tells us is there was a footstep right there. And from that little detail, we can determine how long the person's foot was, how relatively fast they were moving based on the pressure at different parts of it. We can tell the length of their heel. We can tell, most importantly, which direction they're traveling. And being able to read just those things, being able to interpret them from the grass, might be the difference between rescuing someone and recovering a body. See, the disciples are looking at Jesus, and they're seeing the grass, not the footprints. They're looking, but they aren't understanding. They get it, but they don't get it. See, it's not just about looking at what's in front of you, like checking a box, it's understanding how to see what's in front of you. And that's why I say the blind man sees better than the disciples, because he at least realizes his vision isn't perfect, and he admits it. We can learn a lot from that kind of behavior. I mean, 
as we walk through the many, many minefields waiting for us in this seeming endless age of arguments over things like politics and gender identity and sexuality, um, before we get charged up for battle, before we try to make sure everyone sees from our own perspective and, and says that we're right, perhaps like the blind man, we need to begin by recognizing what we cannot see and admit to our lack of vision. Cut off our assumptions, refocus our eyes on Jesus, and tell him we want to see more clearly. See, the blind man's sight was made clear when he could only half see. Why do we think Christ won't do this for us? But Jesus does one more strange thing. See, after giving the man his sight, Jesus sends him home and says, don't tell the folks back home. I mean, look, you've been blind a while, now you're healed, but don't tell anyone. What? I mean, look, that does not match my evangelical upbringing. Imagine having your life utterly altered and then being told, don't tell anyone. I mean, to understand this moment, I think it's important to understand that the disciples and the people of Israel, they're looking for this conquering Messiah, a political ruler to take over as king. They've got all these built-up assumptions about who Christ is and who he must be. They've said them. They've repeated them often. They've probably said them so often that they can't really remember what things were actually written down and what things did they just start talking about in the synagogue one day. So when he says to not return, I think what he's saying is, I don't want you parading me out there because you're only starting to see and you don't get it yet. The people in the village, they're going to hear healed blindness, and they're going to jump to all the wrong conclusions. I mean, to preach without understanding and without communication, it's a really dangerous activity. When we misunderstand Christ, when we present him in ways that people are unable to understand, when we speak before taking the time to focus our vision on him, to separate assumption from understanding, we're dangerous. I mean, if there's a moral lesson to this whole passage, I think it's something like this. Do these things in the following order. See, understand, then respond. See, understand, then respond. Any other order is pretty dangerous. I mean, you can try to understand without seeing, but that's just blindly following orders. I mean, that's, that's legalism. It's following rules without seeing the purpose. It's an attempt at understanding without the grounding vision. Similarly, one of the worst things you can do is walk into a situation or disagreement and say, here are the rules. Everyone has to follow them. My way is the right way. <laughs> you see, what you're trying to do is get to understanding, but skipping the most important step, which is seeing. Stop. <laughs> See, understand, then respond. In that order, please don't skip the first step. <laughs> Can we just imagine what it would be like if we learned to settle our differences like that? Can you imagine how many churches wouldn't split? How many families wouldn't divide if we learned to operate in that order? The fact is, so many of the problems that we have stem from one simple fact. We struggle to see. We struggle to see each other. We struggle to see God in our midst. We follow this image of Jesus and the rules of the gospel that we've made in our own image, an image that is honestly as distorted as that white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed vision of Jesus that artists served us for centuries. A moment of apology on behalf of artists throughout those centuries. <laughs> but fortunately, 
I think artists also have some techniques that can help us learn how to see, and that seems important. How can we see better? So I thought, let's end today with a free art lesson. Uh, five basic instructions for cultivating your vision, things that we might teach in a drawing one class. Five different things, and the first of them is extended focus. You cannot see anew if you are moving too fast. You need to stop and focus. This is the first and foremost problem we have with all of our students in our class. Stop! <laughs> you need to take time. Look deeply. Put away your iPhone. Stop complaining about how you're not capable of doing this yet, and look at the thing in front of you. If you don't give it time, you'll never see. Just give it your focus. Two, contextual awareness. So, Sometimes when we see things, in order for us to understand them, we need a little bit of knowledge of context. So I could put this image of an aboriginal painting in front of you, um, and an initial read might say, this is a beautiful abstract design, and, and you're actually a little bit right there. You're not wrong. It's like the grass. <laughs> but if you know the context of this painting, like some people do, <laughs> you can start to read it differently. See, one thing you need to know about Aboriginal painters, many of them look at the world vertically rather than horizontally. Let me try and explain that to you. If I asked you to draw a tree, you might draw a trunk with kind of leaves around it. If I asked an Aboriginal painter to draw a tree, they would look from the sky down or the earth up like a bird, and it would look more like a circle. And that's where this painting comes from. So when you look at it, what you're seeing is actually kind of like a map. Um, and if you see these little U shapes, these are actually symbols for women who are sitting down in the, in the desert spaces doing different kinds of work. If they're circled around kind of a reddish circle area, that's probably a fire. There's also the, usually these concentric circles that undulate just out in open spaces, and those are thought of as sacred areas of eminence that are, is coming from them. What we're looking at here is actually a landscape scene with people in it. But you wouldn't guess that unless you understood the context of the work and where they're coming from. And I think the same thing goes for when we're reading the Bible. The same thing goes when we are talking about intercultural engagement or intergenerational disagreements or just kind of getting into cultural spaces. Do you ever think about that? When you pull out the Bible, you're actually engaging like in an intercultural activity and we probably need to remember that a few times. <laughs> so we need a little bit of context to help us understand how to read and see things. A third technique, and this is honestly one of my favorite ones, it's, my students hate it, but it's disorientation, okay? Sometimes, in order for us to see clearly, we need to turn things upside down and get disoriented. I love it. It's so frustrating for them. I just watch them all scream in anger and anguish, and I said, ha, I'm doing my job. Um, now, a classic example of this kind of disorientation I'm talking about is from this book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. So, in this example, I think we have the image of it. You literally hand a drawing to them and say, make a copy of this. And it's inevitably, it's, it's really bad. Like, it's, the proportions are all off. They make all these kind of weird squished forms that just don't quite match. This is actually a really, really good example of it. It's strangely accurate. They're often far more distorted. But here's the thing. If you take that very same image and have them turn it upside down and then tell them, copy that image, they will be incredibly more accurate and it's because of that disorientation. They stop assuming a bunch of things about the image. They can't look at it and say, oh, I think a nose is about that big, or I think an eye goes right there, because 
it's disorienting. It's upside down. They're not looking at it. Like, they're just looking at actually what is in front of them. The experience of that disorientation can kind of feel like someone's spitting in your eyes, but what it does is it makes you slow down, makes you pay attention, makes you focus on what's in front of you. When we turn things upside down, we examine them anew, and we learn to see more. And I don't know about you, but that's like the number one way God teaches me things in life. It's like, oh, this is all going right, and he's just gonna turn it upside down. It's difficult. It definitely sometimes feels like spit in the eye. But it's always the thing I learn from. So the fourth thing we can do, and this one, if you are just like curious about going into art school or George Fox, do us a favor and like really model this one. Reception of critique is the fourth thing you can do to cultivate your vision. See, to see like an artist doesn't actually require natural talent. What it really requires is being willing to understand that you have something to learn. <laughs> see, talented artists who enroll in art school often know they have talent, and therefore they don't listen to critique or receive it very well. The artists who grow the most are the ones who are humble enough to consider the possibility they may still have areas they need to grow. It happens time and time again. The student who is struggling to even make a single straight line becomes the greatest one walking out because they were willing to say, I have things to learn. They don't stagnate. So it is with life. We all have places we need to grow. Let's start admitting to it so we can grow. And just in case that gets you worried, like, oh, I'm imperfect, so I guess this is trouble. The last point I want to make here is persistence. Do not let your limited vision or lack of ability keep you from acting. See, a friend of mine was telling me about a book study their church was going through. Um, they've been reading about poverty and sexuality and racial issues. They're in Oregon, so these are like critical conversations for us right now. Um, and they've been talking about how their church has struggled to kind of engage these topics. And I said, great, well, what is your church doing about it then? And they said, well, we've talked about it, but after reading, it's really complex, and we're just kind of worried about doing anything. We might just, I don't know. Okay, I think it's important to walk with care, particularly when you can't see clearly. Like, it's a fool who just runs through the forest in the middle of the night and thinks they're not going to get hurt. <laughs> but let's just imagine what it would be like if an artist said, uh, I can't see that well, so I guess I just won't draw. <laughs> and imagine it. You have to practice. You have to try. You need to make mistakes in order to grow. Your realization that you aren't perfect and your willingness to admit it should actually make you more ready to act rather than less ready to act. See, if you understand your awareness is limited, if you're kind of engaged and realize you're in that disorienting space, you're going to share with appropriate humility. When you know the picture is upside down, you're more, more careful. Your limited vision won't be a hindrance. It will be an opportunity for more. So I think, let me close this by telling you about one painter, Henri Matisse, because I think he embodies this particular value well. Henri Matisse was a French painter in the 1900s. His entire life was dedicated to painting. We have an image of one of his more famous works that you're going to see often in art history textbooks. Um, he was known for sleeping in his studio, working tirelessly. He was incredibly well-received by his community. Like, when you talk about painters at this time, it was Picasso and Matisse. You could count on people knowing them. And then war struck. Germany invaded and occupied France. 
And on top of that, Matisse was rendered deathly ill, bedridden, unable to move enough to paint, and in all likelihood, he began to lose the control required to paint as he once had. Even his vision may have been fading. So here he was, his country, the way things had been, been for as long as he had known, they were utterly changed. His health was going, his skill was going, his vision was depleting. So what does Matisse do? From his bed, he took out brightly colored paper and a pair of scissors. He cut out shapes, he glued them together. He knew he needed help, so he gathered assistants around him to help him work. They prepared paper for him. They took his compositions and recreated them in paint. They painted patterns for him to cut around, interpreted his ideas and adjusted and amplified them. In the final years of his life, with this team to support him, he made the most powerful work of his career. And this body of work came to be known as the cutouts. It's perhaps one of his most important legacies. Some of these works are, are on view at places like the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. You're going to find them all around. By the way, go to the art museums. Arts weekend. <laughs> but most of all, I think we need to learn from Matisse here. Look, the world is going to change, and you are going to be changed. See the changes that are happening around you. Do not ignore them. Understand the limitations of your abilities and knowledge and find a way to share in light of your limited vision. See, understand, realize your limited vision, and respond. That's what we need in our lives, to not give up in this space, but to be willing to see and willing to listen and willing to respond. So pray with me that, that we could be like that. Let's pray. God, help us. May we learn to see clearly May we have the humility to acknowledge the limits of our understanding. May we have the endurance to continue to share. Because in the end, what we're after, what we're trying to do, is learning to persistently see and share the light. To your glory, amen.